0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: Doing well. Today on the show, we have Sarah Stalker. Sarah is running for Kentucky House in District 34. That is the new District 34, which is still in, you know, East Louisville, kind of Northeast Louisville, East Central Louisville. It kind of includes, I, I said it included parts of the highlands st matthews and crescent hill it also includes a lot of other other places but those are three big neighborhoods that you you may have heard of even if you're not from Louisville. so that that's where she's running it's a new district there is no incumbent there it will be somebody new who will be representing that district she has a primary opponent who we will have on later but sarah who told us to call her Sarah today. Uh, She talked a lot about her experience as a foster parent and how that led her to want to run for office and the ways in which she'd like to see the foster system changed. And also kind of her theory of of change, theory of legislating, how she wants to approach the job if she makes it to Frankfurt. It was a a really detailed, uh, you know, a a good interview. She answered all of her questions very thoroughly. Jasmine, did you think it went pretty well?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, She knows a lot about the foster care system which I know a lot about from my experience. So I could probably talk to her about that for a really long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a very good discussion. I was I was really glad we had her on, got her on. Uh, you know, if you live in that district, you know, uh, definitely definitely listen. And then listen again when we have her primary opponent in a couple weeks here to, to help make your decision if you'd like to do that. But yeah, before we get to that interview, we have lots of things to talk about. So we are in the middle of the veto period for the legislature. So first of all, Jasmine's going to talk to us about a few of the bills that got vetoed. We are recording here at about 6:20 on Wednesday, and at 6:01 we got information about a bunch of new bills that got vetoed. So we're going to try to fit those in as well. Um, I am going to go over every bill that we talked about during the session and just kind of give an update about where they stand. So that's a lot of bills, but we're tr- going to try to be brief. But you know, we don't want to leave these things hanging. We definitely talked about them. We want to know kind of where they are, where they stand um, with the, the legislature, uh, the legislative session coming to an end. Jasmine is going to talk about the public defenders who won a big uh decision at the supreme court of kentucky which is really huge for the folks who are public defenders uh being who you know want to have good jobs and want to be able to do their (laughs) do their work and live their life at the same time uh so we're going to talk a little bit about that and there are a few quick hits that we want to get to so without any further ado jasmine talk to us about vetoes
1: all right so there's a few of these that i'm just going to summarize real quick because they already happened and i think we've talked about them but um house bill two and senate bill three which are the redistricting bills the governor vetoed those which those have already been overridden um and then sjr 150 which ended the COVID state of emergency that veto has been overridden and then house bill four is the bill that restricts unemployment benefits um, and that veto was already overridden as well.
0: Yeah, and all of those overrides happened before the veto period even happened. But. Right,
1: and then we have some additional ones that have happened in the last week. Um, one of those is House Bill 388. That allows the treasurer to be the final arbiter of state contracts instead of the secretary of the finance cabinet. A similar bill was passed but struck down in Franklin Circuit Court last year. Um, but it was struck down for... Not having enough reading, so the ruling was not on the constitutionality of the bill. But this is basically another like separation of powers thing, where the legislature is like stripped power from the executive branch, and so that's why the governor vetoed that one. House Bill thirty-five uh, would cha- three thirty-five would change board appointments to the Kentucky Law Enforcement Council and the Advisory Council for Recovery Ready Communities. And this bill would force the governor to choose the appointees from a list that would be submitted by the League of Cities and Association of Counties, plus other groups like the Chamber of Commerce for the Advisory Council, instead of just allowing the governor to choose the appointment. So this is another bill that uh, limits his power. And then another one is Senate Bill 119, which changes the process for honorary road names um, and... Bashir noted that this bill may seem like small and like it only makes small changes. But it's another example of um, taking power from the executive branch and giving to the legislative branch. So, yeah, um, that's why he vetoed that one.
0: Yeah. And and it seems like so the governor has like a few a week or two to do all of these vetoes. And it seems like he's doing them like in tranches. So yeah. all of these seem like they have to do with like a separation of powers issue where the legislature is trying to move power away from the executive.
1: Right. And so we have some new vetoes that happened today. Um, so Andy Bashir vetoed the, transgender student athlete bill and the critical race theory bill. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also vetoed um, the bill that takes aim at Jefferson County cities. And so this is House Bill 314, um, which we just talked about on the show. I believe that was last week Mm -hmm. that changes the process for creating new small cities within Jefferson County. Um, and, and they would no longer have to have like Metro Council approval to do that. And we talked about, you know, this was supported by s- suburban Republicans in the yeah. basically.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Jason Nemus was really the driving force behind it. it. Really, Republicans that represent small cities already. Uh, I don't know if a lot of other small communities were, you know, trying to get this started uh and i live and i think you do too live in small cities in louisville and i personally think it's pretty useless um but i don't know if if you agree or not um
1: but. yeah i tend to agree um governor Bashir said that this bill threatens the success of uh the merger mm-hmm. by putting millions of dollars at, of revenue at risk um, and could also cause the city to lose millions more In federal aid which were the same reasons that that mayor fisher opposed the bill as well yeah Um, so those were a few big ones that were just vetoed today
0: yeah there's a few more too but a lot of them kind of follow in the same trail track of like uh stripping power away from the executives one other one other big one is sb1 um which is the bill that made a lot of significant changes to like the SBDMs and uh, who has control over curriculum at a specific school. Um, and, and that also, that bill was like... The oh, CR- right,
1: that one includes the critical race thing. Yeah, and that
0: was the bill they they shoved the CRT thing into. But I did mm-hmm. want to at least mention, you know, originally SB1 did not include the CRT thing, uh, and the parts of it that were bad besides the CRT thing right. also got vetoed. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, those were both very clearly like CRT... Uh, adjacent issues. Um, So it's good that that got vetoed. So yeah. Um, Alright, so that's where we stand with vetoes, obviously, uh, another week or so to go in the veto period before the uh, legislature will come back to try to override likely will be successful at overriding almost if not all of the vetoes that the governor issues. I did want to go through this long list of bills that we discussed this session and kind of talk about um, where they stand because you know, like I said, we we have talked about a whole bunch of things and then a lot of things we didn't come back to. I tried not to include a lot of things like SB1 or HB1, like a, a, the budget. I, I didn't put anything like that in it. Nothing that we kind of like discussed and said that it passed last week, but just kind of stuff that we left hanging a little bit. So the first one was HB4, which you already mentioned. Uh, it was vetoed and the veto is overridden. This is a bill that restricts unemployment. So you already mentioned that one.
1: Right. The The veto override... Was pretty close um, yeah. in the Senate for that bill.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, and, and yeah, there were that. That was one that Eastern Kentucky Republicans were not a big fan of. Uh, but because they have such overwhelming majorities, they were able to get through. Okay, so the next ones I wanted to talk about were HB fifty one and HB twenty eight, and those both are like very, very, very liberty esque COVID bills. So HB fifty one is a mask mandate ban. Um, and HB 28 is a vaccine mandate ban. These were both passed in the house, but neither one was, was passed in the Senate. Um, so, you know, even if they do manage to pass it, which I don't even think they have enough readings to pass, even if they do manage to pass it, the governor can veto them without, uh, any, you know, there's nothing that the legislature can do. So, uh, given Andy Beshear's strong stance on COVID, if these two, two, these two bills do make it past the Senate, I expect they would be vetoed. All right. SB and HB 313. Those are bail relief restrictions. This was a big topic of conversation related uh, that kind of popped up after um, the the uh, Craig Greenberg was shot out. And Jason Nemus has like, you know, he very much wants to restrict uh, bail organizations. Uh, He managed to get these through the House, uh, but they did not ever get brought up in the Senate. So uh, this one seems dead for this session um related to bail hb 754 which is something else we talked about a a constitutional amendment regarding bail um which would have allowed judges to not issue bail to basically just like remand people to to jail that was never even assigned to a committee
1: and i was kind of told that that bill was was not going to pass this year that it was a, a bill to start that conversation yeah
0: It seems it seems like it did start a conversation, but uh, just wanted to make sure that people knew that that didn't make it through. All right. um, Attica Scott has been a huge champion of the Crown Act uh, for a very, very long time. It seemed like it actually had uh, some momentum. Uh, It received two readings in um, the House. Uh, It got a hearing in committee, but it actually never passed out of committee and it never passed either chamber. So there's no way the Crown Act will pass now. So HB 31, uh, will go unpassed while it's unfortunate. Somebody else besides Attica Scott is going to have to take this up as she is leaving, but I'm sure it will have plenty other champions. And, you know, just like we talked about when she was on our show, um, she is leaving, but there are still two other black women who are in the legislature now. Um, when she started, there were zero. So, you know, there are people to take this up now. Okay, SB 138, we already talked about. So that is the CRT bill, and that was subsumed into SB 1, and that was the way that it passed. So we already talked about that. SB 40, that is a parents' rights bill. Uh, It it passed the Senate, uh, but it did not receive enough readings in the House to pass. Um, This was, yeah, uh, CRT-adjacent kind of like ways that parents can intervene and get teachers in trouble. And we'll, we'll talk some more about that in our quick hits as well. Yeah, SB 83 was the ban on trans girls in sports. Like we just mentioned, it was vetoed today. So that is something that happened with that. Um, That was vetoed. It's likely to be overridden, though as hb 63 that is sros in schools by august so that is a kevin bratcher bill um it is clarifying another bill that um mandated that there be armed officers in in schools but kind of did not uh have a firm timeline this is a bill that has a firm timeline it was delivered to the governor he may or may not over uh veto it but y- even if he does the veto will be overridden um pretty quickly SB 333, this is uh, the next few here are criminal justice reforms, Jasmine, that you talked about a couple weeks ago. SB 333 allows juries to decide if a case warrants uh, sentence enhancements. SB 379 expands parole for persistent felony offenders if offenses are never violent. And then SB 380 eliminates second degree uh, persistent felony um, offender statuses. None of these ever left the Senate Judiciary Committee. They were assigned. Um, which is something we aren't seeing that often anymore. Uh, They just kind of go to the committee on committees and die. So these actually were assigned to the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, but they were never taken up. Um, So, you know, hopefully those started a conversation. You know, uh, you know, I I was glad to have uh, Marcus Jackson on our show to talk about those issues. But yeah, the, the legislature did not seem interested in talking about those this year. HB 318 was what's the opposite of a reform? Uh, It was a criminal justice escalation. It's made made criminal justice worse. Um, This is a bill that would uh, detain juveniles charged with a violent felony. There's a lot of issues around Louisville and the removal of, uh, you know, the juvenile jail and the way that this is a really tough situation for, for police officers, for Uh, You know, juveniles charged with crimes for just basically everybody who's uh, deals with young people. Uh, Yeah, they're lawyers, they're public defenders. It's a big, big hassle for everybody without the the juvenile jail here in Louisville. Um, This bill did pass the House. Uh, It was sent to the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. It seems like that the senators in the Senate or the leaders of the, the Republican leaders in the Senate really did want it to pass, but Whitney Westerfield didn't. So I was mm-hmm. actually removed from the Judiciary Committee, uh, it was reassigned to Health and Welfare and received a favorable report. So it was discharged from the Health and Welfare Committee with a favorable report. And then Whitney Westfield filed seven floor amendments to the bill um, that would have made uh, pretty substantial changes to it. Uh, and, and then the Senate never actually voted on it as a chamber. So it could still pass the Senate. Um, but it could be vetoed after the veto period, which would would kill the bill permanently. This one, though, is kind of tough, because, you know, it is a bill, I think, it would be really disappointing, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that Andy Bashir would sign it. So if it does make it through the Senate, uh, call his office.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that the governor might sign this bill. I mean, he, he was the, the state's top prosecutor yeah. before he had this job. So mm-hmm
0: yeah um yeah and and i mean i also feel like he's a reasonable person and uh you know if it does manage to get through the senate um he's a person who can be reasoned with so hopefully he sees the, the light on hb 318 if it does get to his desk SB 88. This is a bill that would change special sessions. It has enough readings to be passed by the House um, after being and it was already passed by the Senate. But you know, this bill can be vetoed by the governor after that it's likely dead. This bill is contingent on uh, a constitutional amendment passing. I got a little confused when I was looking at this because I thought it was a constitutional amendment but then I remembered. Uh, the constitutional amendment was already passed, we're voting on it. And this bill uh, would change the way that we do special sessions if that um, if that constitutional amendment passes but it doesn't seem like it will be able to go through even if it um, even if that the constitutional, the constitutional amendment does pass because the governor can veto it after the veto bill after the veto period. All right. SB 23. That is the porch pirate bill. That was the bill that David Yates uh, was the main sponsor of. It makes it a felony to steal anybody's Amazon packages or anything else off of somebody's porch, even if it's like a tube of toothpaste it passed both houses, it was delivered to the governor, it passed the Senate unanimously 37 to zero. Um, I think there was like one no vote or one uh, abstention because the person wasn't there. And it passed the House uh, 81 to 14. Um, liberal Democrats, uh, some of the most progressive people in the House, you know, Keturah Heron, um, you know, Mary Lou Marzian, I think, um, Kelly Flood, people like that, in addition to Felicia Rayborn and Jim Duplessis voted no. So, always kind of interesting to see <laughs> Felicia Rayborn's name pop up with like Katrina Heron, but uh, I guess it can happen. All right, SB 25, that was 10 more remote learning days. We talked about it at the very beginning of the session. This is signed into law. SB 48. This is a recovery of $15 million from Brady Industries, an investment that the state made into Brady. This was hotly talked about. It's been We've been talking about it for years. This was something that, you know, I think Republicans said was long overdue when they were doing hearings on it. It was passed by the Senate, but not given enough readings in the pa- House to pass. So it looks like Brady, which is now Unity Aluminum, will be able to keep their $15 million at least another year. HB 256, it increases penalties for unauthorized practice of law. Jasmine, you said this was named for somebody specific. Uh, I didn't remember that, that gentleman's name, but it's somebody who um, gets in trouble a lot or had gotten in trouble for the unauthorized practice of law in the past. This is a bill that passed. It was delivered to the governor. A lot of lawyers on both sides of the aisle voted against it. It passed with pretty significant bipartisan majorities. But I looked at all the no votes. They were Republicans and Democrats. But one of the things they all kind of had in common was that they were all lawyers professionally.
1: This bill was called by some like the Eric Dieter's bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah it was kind of it was, it was inter- another bill that had a very, very interesting uh, group of people that voted for it and against it. Bipartisan majorities, but also bipartisan opposition. Yeah. <laughs> Um, HB 44, the last one I wanted to talk about, it is, uh, mental health days. It passed the bill, it passed the house and it passed the Senate with an amendment to change the language to say that school boards may include mental health absences. Uh, the original bill in the house had required, uh, school districts to include mental health days. So the changes actually have to be accepted by the house. They, they probably, if they want it to pass, are going to have to accept those changes, uh, unless they refuse them and send it back to the senate um there's a little gamesmanship going on there so we'll see what happens this is absolutely still alive it probably will pass in some form or fashion and i think if it does the governor will almost certainly sign it so all right jasmine that's an update on all the bills we talked about this session it was kind of a lot but we got through it uh tell us about the public defenders win at the supreme court
1: all right so in january we shared in a quick hit that the louisville metro public defenders had voted overwhelmingly to unionize with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 369. And this was really good news, um, but the truth is that the fight to unionize has been really difficult, Um, and I don't work there anymore, Um, so I I can share a little bit more about that. But prior to the election... Um, an attorney at the office filed a writ at the Supreme Court of the Kentucky, At filed a writ at the Supreme Court of Kentucky, which the office management um, attempted to intervene and join that writ. Um, and the writ basically alleged that it's unethical for lawyers um, to unionize, specifically public defenders, and they made a few. Different arguments. They, one, it, it's an odd thing to go directly to the Supreme Court for something. Um, it has to be kind of like an extraordinary remedy. And so um, the writ argued we're going directly to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has exclusive power to regulate attorney conduct. And the circumstances here are so compelling um, that the court needs to do something about it before it happens. We can't let these lawyers unionize this is compelling (laughs) and you need to grant this writ um so the supreme court um created rules that do governor attorney conduct um and so they were arguing you created these rules they don't address bargaining but we think it's prohibited because one lawyers must exercise independent professional judgment and if some third party is involved it compromises that Um, they also said that if a lawyer has other interests like bargaining um, that it could create a conflict of interest with their clients Um, and then in the office's motion to like intervene and join the writ they argued that supervising attorneys have a duty to ensure that like non-supervisor attorneys comply with the ethical rules. And if attorneys are part of a bargaining unit, supervisors can't carry out their ethical duties. Um, and obviously other lawyers are part of a union. Um, the Legal Aid Society of Louisville in, in our own city, um, is part of a union. <laughs> and so, I think these arguments are tough arguments to make. Um, I think, at least from my perspective, all public defenders want is they want to be able to represent their clients better. And management at the office is arguing that um, this would create a conflict of interest with clients. But they're just looking for a better work environment to foster better client outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the to Jasmine, to me, these arguments just kind of seem very desperate. Um, very clearly they lost the election by a lot um, and they would need the Supreme Court to really do something pretty unprecedented in order to get, uh, to get the union decertified. And it is almost like expecting lawyers to be like, almost like prisoners themselves to the job. <laughs> right. It's like, you can't, you know, oh, you can't bargain for better work environments, or you can't bargain for better salaries. um, While doing this job, you have to just do it, you have to just do it and do the best you can Mm -hmm. do a really good job for your clients, regardless of anything else, Uh, which just ignores the fact that like, people are the the people who are public defenders are workers, they work, they do a job, uh, just like everybody else. And, and, you know, that
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and really, like that is what could create like, ethical issues. If you're, if you're treated so poorly and working in such poor work conditions that you can't adequately represent your client, that's, that's when there are ethical issues, I think. Um, And so I think that these are tough arguments to make, um, but they made those arguments to the Supreme Court. And a, a very similar writ was filed in 2000. And the Supreme Court Denied that writ um, in an unpublished opinion, um, and so they they tried again, but they they did make the arguments differently this time, um, hoping to get a different outcome. However, the Supreme Court denied the writ at the end of March um, in a to be published opinion. So they didn't publish it back in 2000, but they're publishing this opinion. Um, and the Supreme Court stated that the attorney. That filed the writ did not meet the standard of a well-defined and compelling circumstance that would be required to grant an extraordinary writ. So they did not think it was compelling enough, um, and that the proper mechanism is to request an opinion from the ethics committee and, the, and then you go through the process from there. So um, going straight to the Supreme Court was not the right process to go through. Um, so yeah, that that's a huge win for. Um, the union at the yeah. public defender's office.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's not quite over because there are other avenues for this person. Like, you know, they can go through the mechanism that the Supreme Court suggests, right?
1: Right. Uh, an attorney can always request an informal opinion from the ethics committee. Um, and then if it's a certain kind of issue, then there can be a formal opinion and then that can be appealed. And so there there is a different process to go through. Um, But management tried to prevent the election from happening at all um, because this writ was pending. But the election was held while it was pending and and the vote was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And since then, management has refused to bargain, arguing that they wouldn't do so because this case was still pending at the Supreme Court. Um, And now it's not. And it's. There's been a decision, Their writ was denied, the opinion's going to be published, it, it doesn't leave, it leaves another avenue to request an ethics opinion, um, but it, if that's their excuse to not bargain, um, then... I think it's time for them to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I, it seems like this is definitely going to move the process along um, that you know unionization was trying to solve.
1: Well, um, I don't think it has at this point, um, but that I, that's why I think it's important to to draw attention to it. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, what a what a dramatic situation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, our thoughts are with all the folks who are still working down at the public defender's office. I know a lot of people listen uh, from down there. So, um, you know, everybody who works there does a really hard job. They work really, really hard. And they deserve to be fairly compensated. And they deserve to have bosses that respect them. So um, let's hope that the um, process yields that quickly.
1: Yeah, I and you know, I think I think the goal right now is to raise awareness about what's going on. And so, if any of our listeners are, are connected to anyone, um, know anyone on the board of directors and management, um, anyone on Metro Council, tell tell them what's going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well. Hopefully that happens. Uh, before we leave, we've got a couple quick hits. Um, okay, first one. It's kind of sad story, of actually very sad story. Uh, Estill County, which if you don't know is is kind of like southeast of Lexington. Uh, you know, it's I guess that's right southeast. I guess you just kind of take what is that like 60? I don't remember the name of the road. I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, Anyways, uh, a teacher in Estill County has resigned. After just like maelstrom around a message he wrote on his classrooms board. Uh, All the message said was you are free to be yourself with me and yourself was written in like a rainbow. Um, You know, it was a Uh, very clearly like, uh, you know, it's okay uh, to talk about LGBTQ issues with me, I think is the implication there. I don't think anybody's contesting that. Um, The school board was very clear to say that they did not fire this person, the person resigned. But they did say that some of the content in some of his conversations with students was inappropriate. Um, That's contested, there's a lot of There was a lot of community conversation around this on Facebook. Uh, It was a really kind of very sad and upsetting situation for for this man. The Herald-Leader has done very good reporting on it and has also – Linda Blackford, who's a columnist for the the Herald-Leader, has written a a really nice column on it. If you're not familiar with this issue, if this is something that's on your radar already, I really encourage you to check that out. Um, This is something that's really happening across the country right now in Florida – You know, that's something that's gotten a lot of national attention with their don't say gay bill. Um, There's other major issues going on in in Texas and other kind of um, strongly Republican states like Kentucky. Um, and, and certainly the issues don't need a legal justification a lot of time. A lot of times people can be persecuted right out of their job, even without, uh, new legislation allowing them to do so. So really unfortunate situation for that gentleman there in Estill County. Hopefully, um, he's able to get another job, um, and he's able to help students in a different place. Uh, my other quick hit is that Craig Greenberg's campaign released their first ad, uh, that centers around the shooting that occurred in his office. It's narrated by Mrs. Greenberg, and it shows pictures in the wall of his office with bullet holes in it and also shows pictures of Mr. Greenberg's sweater, which he was wearing, which was grazed by a bullet. Um, it's the first time anybody's like really seen images from that day. It really does drive home, I think, how close of a call that that really was. Um, I would say that reaction on social media has been pretty mixed. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's a good barometer of public opinion as a whole. Um, but that is something, you know, we are seeing, um, you know, uh, I don't I don't really know what people expected to happen if that he wasn't going to talk about this or that th- this wasn't going to be something that that was brought up in the campaign. Um, Jasmine, any thoughts that you have about either of these quick hits?
1: Well, One, the story about the Estill County teacher is just terrible. The Herald-Leader article kind of, like, talks about, it compares what's going on to the satanic panic. Yeah. Um, And the the article is definitely worth reading. And then um, the Craig Greenberg ad, I haven't seen it yet, but hearing what it depicts... uh, I honestly don't know how I, I feel about that. Um, I guess I'll have to, to see it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the discussion has been pretty hot and heavy about it. Uh, I, you know. I it's it's interesting and it's tough uh I mean what I would say is it's really hard to get like shot at in your campaign office but then the secondary discussion that happens about like what are we going to do now how are we going to are we going to talk about this in the campaign those conversations are really hard they're really fraught and I'm sure they're (laughs) I'm sure they're really awkward in in a moment when things are really yeah I think
1: what I think what is strange to me about it is obviously it's a conversation that you have to talk about. I'm I'm totally okay with talking about it as part of your campaign, um, but depicting it in an ad when there's a criminal case going on that someone someone's charged with a crime and that case is still pending, um, and then like showing like maybe like potential evidence in it like that that is kind of off to me, and I, I don't really appreciate it so. Um without seeing it that that those are kind of my initial thoughts
0: yeah um i I didn't even really thought about it from that from that direction um I, they don't mention the the case at all and they don't really even they never mention the person it's connected they try to connect it to like other people who have experienced violence and and what I another thing I think about like the way that the ad works is like it's very clear that the the incident has been used politically like jason nemus already tried to like capitalize on craig greenberg getting shot at by having you know his bail bills uh get heard and passed by the house um so it's going to be used by somebody and you know i i guess you know if you're craig greenberg you have to figure out a way that you're going to talk about it um but yeah i you know gotta watch the ad i guess before um
1: i did see my first morgan mcgarvey tv ad in the past week though
0: i have not seen i have not seen anything yet just what's on there i
1: like it
0: you like his ad okay well there you go uh i'm sure uh, we'll see you know in in tv time is really expensive and uh a lot of kind of interesting thoughts now about whether or not it's as effective as it used to be so i don't know if everybody else is going to be on the air but i'll be on the lookout for for morgan's ad All right, well, that will do it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Sarah Stalker.
1: Sarah Stalker is a candidate for the Kentucky House in New District 34. So this new district is in East Central Louisville, north of Taylorsville and Bardstown Roads, east of Cherokee Parkway, and then all areas south of Brownsboro Road, and then some neighborhoods north of there as well. So for the past seven years, Sarah has worked for the Center for Nonprofit Excellence, a group that consults with nonprofits in lots of different ways. And this is her first run for public office. So Sarah Stalker, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast.
0: Thanks, Jasmine. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So you are running to join the Kentucky House of Representatives as a Democrat. Uh, Right now, the Democratic caucus has 25 members. If you win, it will be, you know, really hard to advance any legislation and your abilities to really block any bad legislation will also be really limited. And this is something we've seen time and time again as this current session has gone on. So so with that in mind, you know, tell us why you decided to get into this. Why do you want to join the Kentucky House?
2: Yeah, that's a fair question. So I would say it's going to be even harder to advance legislation if I don't win. And here's why. Because I'm not disconnected from the issues that are obviously not only in district 34 um, things don't stop at imaginary lines um, they're in lots of different districts across the entire state um, and my background you know I worked for the last uh, for seven years with the Center for nonprofit excellence and now I do private consulting um, that in combination with being a foster parent for almost seven years has really, you know, completely opened my, my eyes up um, to so many of the challenges and so many things that are happening within our foster care system and how that actually overlaps, obviously, with the nonprofit community. And nothing is ever simple or easy. Um, everything always has tentacles when you're right trying to address an issue, um, which makes things difficult. But, um, you know, it's it's, it's important. So when people are like, this is going to be really hard, and I'm like, yeah, like, get in line, like, what else is, you know, like, there's lots of things that are hard to do. And I'm not, um, I don't typically run away <laughs> from things that are hard, at, you know, for, for better or for worse, the way that I am wired as a person is that when I see something, hear something, know something, I cannot undo any of those things. And I am not somebody who has ever just sat inside my home and, you know, talked about whatever the topic is at hand and said, oh, gosh, that's just, that's just so frustrating, right? Like, oh, four Democratic women got cut out of their seats here in Louisville. That's so frustrating. I'm so mad. And then like do nothing, right? So I, you know, I was when people, you know, talk to me about their emotions. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about emotions. But then let's talk about like, how, how mad are you? How sad are, like, how sad do you think this is? How mad, you know, whatever it is, like mad enough to do something about it. Um, And so I've always just been pretty action oriented and it's exhausting some days. If I'm being completely honest, there are days where I wish I could just be like, I'm going to go back to bed and pull the sheets over my head and let somebody else like try to save the world today. Um, But it's just not the way I'm wired. So when I was asked to run for this, I had like five or six days (laughs) Um, to think about it. Um. And, you know, what led me to say yes was I was really frustrated that women were cut out. Um, That seems uh, obviously intentional. And I know we all lost some time in COVID, uh, but it felt like the hands of time were being turned back. And we were just like, I don't know, it feels a little bit like Twilight Zone. Um, I'm just like, what's happening? So like whatever side of the party you're on... um, you know, when you are starting to intentionally exclude a group of people, that's concerning. And, and then we're just talking about like men and women, right? We're not even getting into the full spectrum of other genders and identities and like who else is not at the table. Mm-hmm. So I was really frustrated that women were cut out. And I find that super concerning because women are literally on the line right now. And then with my background of working in the community, when I worked with CNPE, I was the director of community engagement and membership. So I had the privilege to build some really deep and meaningful relationships um, in the community on pretty much any topic, right? Like any challenge that we are having um, that we just have not figured out how to crack that nut around right? Pick the topic, mental health, homelessness, veterans, education, right? The list is very long. Um, that and in combination with my foster, you know, being a foster parent for as long as I did, I thought, well, you're not disconnected. Um, I have lots of soap boxes. I just tend to act on them instead of just, you know, talking about them. So um, so that's why I decided to run. Um, and, I, I, and I'm not scared. I mean. I guess it's easy for people to jump in when things are, like, super easy. It's like, yeah, jump on in. The water's warm. I mean, there was not a line out the door, I guess, for people to, like, want to do this. And a lot of people said, you know what you're getting yourself into? (laughs) This is a rough time to be in Frankfurt. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, yeah, the honest answer is yes and no. Right? Like, I'm not oblivious as to what's going on. Um, And you don't really know until you, like, get there and you've got your junior mints and your popcorn and you got a front row seat to the whole thing. So,
1: Yeah, so let's talk about your new district. So the the 34th is new, and none of the incumbent House members live there. And we talked about the streets at at the top there, but it's a combination of the Highlands, St. Matthews, and Crescent Hill neighborhoods. And while those areas of town are similar in some ways, they, they do each have their own strong sense of identity. So how do you see your role in organizing this new district and Bringing the concerns of that district to Frankfurt?
2: Yeah, so I would say there are, uh, there's a common thread of concerns in all of these um, neighborhoods. And, and the three that you mentioned, like predominantly, like, yes, those make up the majority of this district. And then there's some other kind of parts, like where I live, I'm kind of smushed in between St. Matthews and Hikes Point. There's a little bit of Hikes Point cut in, um, mm-hmm. and there's the neighborhoods down uh, Brownsboro Road um, as well. But Uh, As I've been knocking on doors in different neighborhoods, it's, you know, I'm hearing definitely some of the same concerns. But what I also find concerning is when I knock on somebody's door and I'm having a conversation and I ask them the question of what, you know, what issues and concerns do you have about Kentucky right now? uh, Because I understand what my job is should I get elected, right? All I have is a primary on May 17th. There's no Republican that filed in this district, so it is just me uh, and one other person. And I understand the job is to represent, right, the constituents that make up that district. What I do find concerning is when people say, I don't know, like, I don't really have any concerns. I'm good right now. And so when somebody says that to me, and I've had a couple of those, it tells me one of two things is going on. You either are not paying attention (laughs) or you are functioning from a place of, you know, privilege to where you just, like, nothing is, right, nothing is on the line for you, Um, and that is concerning, um, that is concerning for me, so there's a lot of things that may not affect me personally, but I have the wherewithal to understand that, like, morally, like, these aren't, this isn't helpful for our community, but, you know, I I think the key to bringing those, to pulling those neighborhoods together is really around communicating and engaging and organizing. And I'm really good at doing all three of those things. I saw a lot of people just really disconnected from understanding just like what the role of this of a state representative does i mean i kid you not i knocked on somebody's door and i live in with a little city and so we have um like a a home rule city and so we have our own mayor and what have you and this gentleman was he said um well what would be the difference like he did not understand the difference between like why he would contact the mayor of our city versus his metro council person versus me Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a, that, there's a huge disconnect and there's a lack of education. And I, you know, have had a lot of people really be honest with me and say, this is really embarrassing, right? These are people who have college, you know, um, college educated people where they're like, I feel like I need to go back and watch that like you know, how something becomes a bill, right? Whatever that PSA, that is the educational thing that we used to watch as kids um, because they weren't like really quite sure of like what it was I was doing and how that really affected them. So I think there's a huge opportunity to really educate people and um, making sure that they understand where um, everybody within this larger political system plugs in, if that makes sense. Um, so, so the goal would just be to communicate, engage, and organize um, those folks. And I think that really starts with your precinct, mm-hmm. committee, men, and youth. So every precinct should have those three individuals in place. I just became um, the precinct committee woman. I believe that was like last summer. Nobody ran against me. I mean, again, nobody is like getting in line for this. My grandmother was a precinct captain. I think they used to, they changed the terminology. And both my parents grew up in the Highlands. And uh, by single single mothers. And I mean, her house was a polling location, for God's sakes. I mean, it was like if that takes you back to like how long ago this was where people would go to show up in her garage in the summertime or her basement in the wintertime. But we don't have people in all of these roles. And then getting those people in those roles is really not only is it critical, but then making sure that they're organized and that they're communicating with the voters in their neighborhood and like bringing people along into this process. Those people are really key for building community from a political standpoint,
0: I think. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think that One of the interesting things about this district is that uh, it hasn't really been put together in any kind of meaningful way. It's been kind of all, all, all of the places that make up the 34th now are kind of like what were the outlying areas in other districts before. And now that they're all together, I think there is a chance to really improve the organization in some of these really important parts of town. So it's good to hear that you're willing to take that on. Um, But we do want to talk a little bit about what you would do like once you get to Frankfurt if you if you win your election. Uh, And you've already mentioned a few times uh, that you've been a foster parent in the past. And that's an inspiration and one of the reasons why you decided to run. Um, And you know that the process of becoming a foster parent does very, very heavily involve the state government. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, is there anything from your experience in the foster system um, that, that you would want to improve, that you would want to champion, that you would want to, you know, bring to the other legislators and see if they would be willing uh, to look at or change or, or approach in a different way?
2: So the answer is yes and yes. And that's like a whole nother podcast like episode. I mean, when you get into foster care, there's so much to unpack there. So I'll try to hit just some kind of highlights um, so that we can... <laughs> get on to other questions that you may have. So our family began, we opened our home in 2015. And my biological children at the time were seven and 11. And doing that completely changed who I was, you know, it changed us each as individuals, but it also changed us as a family. And the, the front row seat you have to what is not a pretty show is pretty devastating and the complexities behind everything, the inefficiencies behind things. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I, and people always say like, you can't throw money at everything. And I'm like, it's a great start. So let's talk about funding because it always is going to come down um, to the dollars and what you can and cannot do. Um, So we have to be able to fund, Um, our social services at a more adequate, I mean, it's just, it's abysmal. And I know that the the social workers were given a small raise. And while I think it's an improvement, I don't think it's like, let's not... blow the horns and and toss confetti. Like there was no like real win here. I'm like, great. So like, maybe are they not now eligible for food benefits, right? We have so many of our social workers who are eligible for state assistance services such as food. Um, And I think that's concerning when the people, you know, and our social workers are so critical to our community and specifically when you're Asking folks to work in an area where families are in crisis and they're having to go into people's homes and remove their children. Um, The amount of secondary trauma that comes with that is unbelievable. But, you know, starting, you know, from a funding perspective, we have got to get more social workers and we have a rotating door of workers coming in and out because they are, you know, they're underpaid, they're overworked, and they get burned out and they're not getting the training that they need because we don't have the people power, right, in place. And people need to be compensated and social workers um, are no exception. So I would say funding for social workers, um, just our system, you know, in general, it's a really antiquated system that, you know, you would think, being in 2020, that there are so many things that you could set up from an efficiency standpoint of doing things online, but I would still have social workers come and just like the physical pieces of paper that I would have to sign, you know, and things that you would go through. I'm like, how have we not built an infrastructure online where you, I mean, think about all the things you can do online now. And the fact that we, um, are really lagging behind makes, um, it creates, it creates a lot of lag in between trying to get like a family approved once they start that journey. Um, I've seen families just be sitting on hold for months. Sometimes they know why, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's because they're waiting on, you know, a home inspection. So they've turned in all their paperwork, but they're waiting on a physical person who can come and make sure that their house is safe so that they can open that home um, officially and start accepting placements of kids. Um, so we have also the family first. So that was a couple of years ago. And I remember, again, I felt like people were thinking like this was going to be a cure-all because they were taking a pot of money and saying we can now allocate a certain percentage of this money to put towards families on the front end, preventative services. So I was like, that's great. But if if we have a pot of pennies (laughs) and there's 100 pennies in the pot and you're saying we can use 25 of those pennies now. To go to you know preventative services so that we can help families before their kids get to the point where they have to come in care. Um, while that's great, that's not more pennies. Like we don't have enough pennies in the pot to begin with to to help the kids once they're in care. Um, so just taking more away and just reallocating them isn't really helping. Like we need a whole nother pot. And it needs to not be pennies, right? We need a whole other pot of some some better uh, some better coins, <laughs> some quarters in there. Um, so you know, there are so many kids that there there have been kids in my home where I have you know sat down at the end of the day and said, I don't think this kid ever needed to be in care, right? Because we for for whatever reasons, uh, for poverty, for example, you know, I had a kid in my home during it was during the pandemic. Um, she was there for a full year. And left in June of that first year of the pandemic, and I was concerned about her going home only because, um, because you know everything was shutting down, and her mom was was a a waitress, and and the restaurant had closed. And I thought this was a family that was already struggling with poverty, um, not because she was not a good mom; she was doing the best she could as a single mom raising her kid. Um, but she was struggling with poverty and also her child was being bullied and she tried to get her moved to a different school and and that didn't happen and so she pulled her kid from school and thought she would be able to homeschool her and well unfortunately that really wasn't a reality so you know then that becomes like educational neglect or truancy right because she stopped showing up so it's like there's so many ways where we can intervene and help kids before they come into a system that I think oftentimes like once you get some winners like in there sometimes where kids have some good experiences and good outcomes, but we do so much additional trauma to kids after they are brought into the system. And one day I just looked at my husband in the kitchen we were talking and I said, I get why sometimes kids come into care, right? Like why you get removed from your home. But then it's like, but then what happens when you were brought into a system that is failing? Who removes them from the state? I don't know. You know, like, I don't know, like, who's overseeing that? But that's a problem. And we are in crisis. Um, So I'll stop right there. And because, I mean, there's so many more things that we, you know, that I would say, like, we shouldn't allow, we shouldn't be contracting with any private agency that will not allow LGBTQ families. That's, that is deeply concerning. And I'll just say, you know, we're messed up. Um, I worry about the kids who are part of our LGBTQ community. So like if you aren't allowing the adults to become foster parents, what happens when the LGBTQ kids hit your agency? Like how are they being received and cared for and um, recognized for their authentic self? That's deeply disturbing. You know, we we ended up fitting into a very small um, group of people here in you know, we took kiddos that nobody was lining up to take. You're talking about kids that are teenagers. And and I will say this, six is the new 16. So we weren't even going into six. Like that's little for a lot of people. I'm like, oh, or, you know, that's old for a lot of people, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, we took teenagers. We took kids that are part of our um, LGBTQ community and kids that were not white. So any kid that was part of the BIPOC community. And that was like a triple threat right? Like as far as like, that was a really hard kid to place. And um, I'm con- deeply concerned about kids that are in our LGBTQ community and their sense of self and belonging. They're the highest um, rate of kids that are, that are contributing to our homeless population. Because sometimes they come into foster care because of that. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just hit the street right away and they're couch surfing, right? And so like the outcomes just are not good, the data does not work in their favor for like what things are going to be like for them moving forward. So I will pause there. Like I said, it's a whole nother podcast that we can do on another day.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're definitely speaking my language. I was a juvenile public defender. Um, so I represented kids charged with crimes, but also kids charged with status offenses like truancy. And I really appreciate you talking about kids that don't need to be in care. Um, because that's something that I, I, I think a lot of people don't realize <laughs> that not all the kids in, in foster care, um, they don't need to be there. And if we were taking care of them in other ways, then they wouldn't be in that situation. Um, You're going to put
2: the money someplace though, right? Yeah. Jasmine? I'm like, why would you put a kid with me? You know, when you could be putting that money, like the redirection of money and where it needs to be going. The, you know, the, the goal within fostering is always reunification. And some people don't get that. And yeah. we'll come into this for the, not the right reasons, is what yeah. I would say, or for what my reasons are. But the goal is always reunification. This is not an adoption mill for babies. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) This is, you know,
2: your goal is to be a safe space for kids to land when those families are in crisis. And it is generally always in the best interest for that child to return home. Not always. Sometimes there's some really severe situations and the safety of those children is always first. But making sure that those families are getting those resources and supports they need will generally let's put the money there and keep those families intact. And re- diverting
1: them, and I think those, you know, those are two different like ideological differences. Some people believe that the goal is always reunification, and some people believe it should more often than not be adoption. And so, the legislature has introduced bills that make it harder to reunify children with their families, and and that's why. We need different perspectives in Frankfurt.
2: <laughs> we sure do. And there's some, there's some situations where, you know, that's the thing is like, there this is not a cookie cutter situation. Like you have to look at each case and really understand. But I mean, I had a, I had a kid that was placed with me and she was one of, I think, five kids that every single child was spread out across Kentucky. Mm-hmm. No, n- not, no two children were even together. All five of them, five different homes. And I remember going to court and I said, I have got to speak. Will somebody please let me speak? (laughs) And because typically the foster parents are not, we're not a voice um, that gets um, heard very often. And I just said, I need to understand why this child has been in care, you know, has been in foster care for four years, right? We have these timelines in place and sometimes they're not always perfect. And when families are working to, you know, meet their goal plans for reunification, we want to support that. And then there just gets to the point where you're just like, what's going on here? Like how, how much damage have we continued to do because we've let this go for too long now, right? Like there's no magic number to know, like, well, once the kid's in care for, you know, cause you don't even know what experience they're having when they're in foster care and how many times they're, they're bounced around. And I would say foster homes are no different than biological homes. There's some good ones. There's some bad ones. There's everything in between. Um. So it's like, you know, I, I just want to be careful about people who like to kind of put a cape on me or any other foster parent. Like we're not heroes. I'm not doing anything that's not in, that anybody else couldn't do, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's hard work. I'm not minimizing. Yeah. it. But um, there's a, there's a role that everybody can play. Um, I think when we say that, it like almost excuses us, like, oh, that's superhuman. I can't. I could never do that. And It's like, well, just try it. Like, fail forward. That's what I do in life. <laughs> like,
1: figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> try it. Well, right? We do want to talk to you about um, some other issues, too. So we're in the midst of the veto period uh, for the legislature, and there were a lot of bad bills passed and some good ones that made it through the legislative process this year. So uh, just tell us your thoughts on some of the bills that passed so far. Are there any that you particularly liked or disliked?
2: Yeah, so... um I'll name a few of those. So um, speaking about child um, welfare, so that was Senate Bill 8. So Julie Rocky Adams, um, as far as like bolstering the child welfare system, um, I thought that was helpful. I think the Senate Bill uh, 102, Max Weiss, um, that was helpful as far as like it was the yearly census of Kentucky school-based um, mental health professionals and um, the student ratio, like just making sure because mental health is a huge platform for me and a concern. Um, and something that I've of course that that connects with foster care as well. Um, so, you know, I never think we're doing enough when it comes to mental health, is is what it comes at the end of the day. Um, we've got we've got to balance our ratios better for kids in schools. Um, I think what's currently pending, which is H- HB 83. So that was ensuring the continuation of an unemployment benefits for victims of domestic violence and abuse. I thought that was super helpful. I literally had a friend who was trying to leave an abusive relationship and I was stashing money away from her, like any little bit of money that she could save, um, just to, you know, to ensure that she could get out safely. And, you know, so having, having a bill like that is huge. For people in those types of relationships um, so that they can safely get out and not feel tied right because so many people are tied financially to an individual when it comes to um, the domestic abuse situation uh let's see the house bill 174 extending the medicaid eligibility for new mothers so that postpartum care that's huge like yeah that i think they took that out to a year And so that's super helpful to help support mothers who are on Medicaid and making sure that they're getting what they need for their, for their own health and for the health of that child up to a year, that postpartum care. Um, And then the, let's see. I think that's it. As far as I tried to make some notes, as far as things that I was not excited about, (laughs) um, I did not. um, I did not feel good, obviously, about the uh, House Bill 3, which was the anti-abortion bill after 15 weeks. So when I talk about women are on the line right now, we are literally on the line. Our rights, our bodies, um, you know, it's it's devastating that, to see how many people just completely ignored what Senator Karen Berg had to say. And her response was amazing. And I know it's gone viral and I've helped to share it out a little bit to the world as well. So um before, which was reducing unemployment benefits. Um, didn't feel good about that at all. As somebody who's been on unemployment, um, who's had a spouse on unemployment, we are still in a pandemic. Um, that's not helpful for, t- for people. Um, and I think that was like in the same breath, they were also saying like, yeah, but we're not going to ask people to pay taxes, who um, people who own private planes, right? So it's like, right, right, right. This makes a lot of sense. Don't tax the people who can afford it and then, like, just continue pushing, you know, pressure on people who are already working from a deficit because they've lost a job. It's just, no, it's not. It's not people being good humans, is what I would say. Um, And then the Senate Bill 83, restricting the participation of trans kids playing sports, didn't feel good about that at all. So my lovely friend Fisher, who's at Westport Middle School, her parents are dear friends of mine. And I remember they called me when it happened, and they were like, oh, my God we just got a call from the school saying Fisher cannot play in their first official game tomorrow. And I was like, what? I was like, all right, let's call ACLU. Let's call the fairness committee." You know, like it was just like jumping into action. And my friend Brian goes, Oh my God, you're like a, like a, a human life action figure, just like jumping in to, you know, to help out. And I'm like, well, this is what you have to do, right? Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is horrible and this is discriminating and this is a child. And we can't we can't just sit by and just be like well sorry <laughs> sorry you can't play because people don't you know can't handle you being your authentic self because they don't understand that um, so yes yeah, so there's that there's the charter school the HB um, 9 and then there's the Senate bill 138 around the CRT I mean just there's so many bad things right now <laughs> that are just the list is too
1: long. So. Yeah, the, those are a lot of a lot of the ones that we've been talking about on the show um, the last couple months. And in addition to all the bills that passed this year, you know, a lot of the Democratic priorities like legalized medical marijuana, sports betting, um, different criminal justice reforms, th- those never saw the light of day or, or didn't make it across the finish line. Um, mm-hmm. So, d- do you see yourself being a champion for? Um, any of those major democratic priorities if you make it to Frankfurt?
2: Absolutely. Of course. And, you know, um, I'm surprised that I really thought the um, medical marijuana had a chance. And so I was pretty bummed to see that that did not go through. Um, you know, we're just, we're not making um, a lot of great decisions right now. Um, what I find really concerning um, and that needs to be kind of pulled to people's attention is that, you know, I don't feel like the folks that are in Frankfurt right now, like they're not listening to their constituents, right? Like this was something that I think most people were in favor of, and yet it still didn't pass. So it's like, again, like understand your role when you get there. Like if I get there, it's not the Sarah Stocker show, <laughs> right? Like I have my soapboxes, I have my concerns. I would certainly um, be having conversations about those for sure. Um, But I, but I also the job is to be, you know, clearly communicating with your constituents and understanding what they do and do not uh, want to support right and taking that back because that's your job you are a representative for that district. Um, And I'm super concerned about you know anything to deal with criminal, you know, reform, I mean and then the marijuana, right? Like that just gets in hand in hand with that as far as legalizing that, even if it's for, you know, uh, recreational purposes, like how many people have been put in prison for like very low level offenses or, you know, so we like, can we just decriminalize that? And like, that would help to get a lot of people out of our system that are literally just sitting there for, for no good reason. Like these aren't good reasons. These are not violent offenses. Um, it's, it's pretty mind blowing to see what people will just like, keep allowing to to go through
0: yeah it's certainly true uh and it's something that we've been watching for quite a while now uh you know and that's that's definitely been a refrain since really we started the show um but yeah that is actually something i'm interested in hearing you talk about so you uh you know you have all these things that You know, we've been talking about the things you want to do, especially like around reforms to, you know, foster care and then all these things that we've just been talking about that actually got addressed in the the legislative session. And going back to the beginning of our interview when you talked about, you know, you understand it's a hard job. uh, It's going to be really tough to be able to do this. You know, tell us a little bit about how you envision approaching legislating when you get there. You know, we've got – we've talked to just about everybody uh, who's a Democrat down there. And a lot of people have different ideas about how to, how to work with Republicans, how to work with the majority. Um, Just from your perspective, if you make it there, what, what would be your strategy? How would you go about trying to, to, you know, advocate for your vision of government uh, while a part of a super minority caucus?
2: Yeah. So I think for better or for worse, and this is why I'm like, I don't know if I'm the right person to get into this maybe because maybe I don't come at it right from a, from a historically, like, typical political position, like, I, you know, my approach is, like, let's sit down and have a conversation. There is a bumper sticker that used to go around, and it would say, and it said, uh, don't believe everything you think, right? So, like, let's just stop and, right, like, reflect on that. Like, why do you feel that way? So, I think it's about having, it's about, you know, it's about listening to people, Um, So many times people are not like really listening, they're just waiting for their turn to talk. I really want to understand where people are coming from, like why, you know, whatever the topic is that's at hand, like, tell me why you feel that way. What has informed you? Um, to feel that way about the, this particular topic. And then let me tell you where I might have some, you know, some differing uh, opinions and approaches for, for whether it's something I've experienced firsthand or, or something that I've just had proximity and closeness to. And when I don't have those two things, I think it's critical to bring those people to the table that do. So, you know, if we're talking about food insecurities or homelessness or whatever the topic is, if you have not experienced those, then it is your due diligence to go and find the people, right? Whether that's talking to Coalition for the Homeless, right, or Dare to Care, or right, like talk to who are the who are the experts in the community? Whether it's the organizations doing the work or the individuals who have actually been affected by these issues, and they are the experts. Bring them to the table. They will tell you what the problem is. They will tell you, um, you know, how exhausting it is, um, all the red tape that you know that exists. And if you, if you genuinely want to help people, you're willing to sit down and have those conversations. But I think all too often those processes are put in place um, purposely, right, to make things harder for people. And to, um, you know, when you keep people in poverty, um, there's a lot of control there. Um, you keep people poor and uneducated, and that's not helpful. And I'm not interested in perpetuating that type of um. Place to you know, like I, I'm not interested from in functioning from that type of place. Um, it's not it's not been helpful for Kentuckians, and I think um, the more people are starting to pay attention, that they are starting to see that a lot of these things and people that they're electing into the office and things that they're voting for are working against their own best interest. Um, so listen, you know, so listening and advocating. I really just want to have conversations with people um, and really build really build authentic relationships. So, you know, maybe maybe people think that's completely naive. That's fine. Like everybody's entitled to their opinion to be like, oh my gosh, you're going to, you think you're going to actually sit down and talk to a Republican? Like, no, I think I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to somebody who happens to identify themselves as a Republican, just like I happen to identify myself as a Democrat. But at the end of the day, hopefully <laughs> there's a sense of humanity there that we can share and, and, and we can get to a good place. Um, and just, you know, you don't have a relationship with people. You don't, they don't trust you. You can't do anything. So if you're not there building relationships, then like you might as well just go home. Like nothing's going to happen. Um, but when people, you know, when you can build those relationships and it's done from an authentic place, I think people are much more willing to sit down and have a conversation and figure out how can we get to a good place?
1: Well, before we let you go, how can people get involved with your campaign?
2: So I would tell people to just go to the website. So it's Sarah for s a r a h f o r k y dot com. There are some social media handles there, so um, no need to give all of those out. But would love to hear from people. Would love to know what's keeping them up at night. If they're interested in getting involved, um, would love that. Um, you can you can. There's a couple of different ways you can reach out and contact um, to let us know what you're interested in, or if you just want to learn a little bit more about me and um you know, in my priorities and my concerns, the website would probably be a great place to start. And then I would say reach out because I'm really good at getting back to people <laughs> and I'd love to hear from you.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, Sarah Soccer, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KWA pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.